Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the People's COVID Inquiry and our second session entitled, How Did the Government Respond? I'm John Puntis, co-chair of Keep Our NHS Public, the campaigning organisation that has called this inquiry. Now, the government has accepted the need for a public inquiry, but they've deferred this until some unspecified and distant date. Uh, meanwhile, history, of course, is being rewritten. We heard recently from Matt Hancock that there were never, in fact, any shortages of personal protective equipment. We support calls for an official public inquiry, but the scale of the ongoing crisis simply means that the people's COVID inquiry is needed right now. The inquiry is tasked to look at the urgent lessons to be learned from the coronavirus pandemic, which even with vaccination is by no means all over. The Prime Minister is on record as saying, at all stages we've been guided by the science and we will do the right thing at the right time. He also said, what I can tell you is that we truly did everything we could and continue to do everything that we can to minimise loss of life and to minimise suffering in what has been a very, very difficult stage and a very, very difficult crisis for our country. And we will continue to do that. The inquiry will deal with facts. And there's one fact that stands out above all others, and that's deaths from COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic just over a year ago. These now exceed 123,000, meaning that the UK death toll is the worst in the world. And even now, as we're sending our children back to school, many more deaths are predicted. Now, was the scale of this tragic loss of life avoidable? Was the government response appropriate? We all deserve to know how and why this happened. The government so far has failed to learn from its mistakes, continuing, for example, to pour money into an ineffective privatised and centralised test and trace system. The inquiry will hear evidence and our panel will draw conclusions in due course, which will be shared with government. We are grateful to the panel and to all the witnesses who are agreeing to appear uh, over our planned nine sessions. Each session we aim should last around two hours and there will be experts in their field as well as citizen witnesses giving testimony from their personal work or community experience. We've had quite a lot of questions sent in from the public. There's not time to address all those, but they will be taken into account and they will be shared with the panel. In relation to tonight's event, it is being live streamed on Keep Our NHS Public's main Facebook page and on our YouTube channel and Twitter account. And it's being shared on various other campaign pages as well. 
If you are watching the live stream rather than the Zoom, could you please share as wide and as far as possible so that many others can join in and watch the event too? We do have live captioning available. You can turn this on or off by clicking on the CC closed captions icon at the bottom of the screen. And we'll also post a link in the chat where you can read instructions on how to access the closed captions uh, if, you, uh, if, if you need to. Look for the link called Accessibility Guide. Various links will also be posted in the chat throughout the session, so please keep an eye out for these. This will include links to our crowdfunder, registration links for the next session, newsletter, sign-ups, and so on. The video of this session will be available to watch again on social media, on the platforms that it's being live streamed to, so you'll be able to watch it again very soon or let others know about it if they haven't seen it tonight. And we will be having a five-minute break somewhere in the middle of this session uh, when we will show a short video uh, of Matt Hancock. So now I'd like to introduce the panel. We're very fortunate to have them. Our panel chair is Michael Mansfield QC, internationally renowned human rights lawyer, currently involved in the Grenfell inquiry, but who's also represented the Stephen Lawrence family, Hillsborough families, and many others. Professor Nina Modi is Professor of Neonatal Medicine, Imperial College London, and President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. Dr. Tallulah Oni is Urban Epidemiologist and Public Health Physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemiology Unit, University of Cambridge. Dr. Jackie Davis is an NHS consultant radiologist, an author, and a BMA council member, appearing in a personal capacity, uh, as are all the panel. And then we have Lorna Hackett, barrister at Hackett and Dabs, who is acting as counsel to the inquiry. So welcome to all of you, and it's now my honour to hand over to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I just pause always to make sure I'm heard and seen. I don't get any adverse comments, so that's all right. Um, I want to move on, obviously, and indicate that what we're trying to do here, the model we're using, uh, a people's tribunal, uh, people's inquiry, is a well-trodden path. I've done several of them, both in the United Kingdom and internationally. They're usually adopted by communities and by citizens when a government fails to provide uh, a, an organism of a similar kind, in other words, a public inquiry. Although there's been one promised here, there's no date on it. And at the moment, given the state of play nationally with other issues, Brexit and so on, as well as an ongoing pandemic, it's most unlikely that there will be resources put aside for this. So it will take the normal course of judicial inquiry set up by government will take the normal course of maybe taking two or three years to set up, another two or three years to have the hearings and another two or three years to make a report. So if you add all that together, that's roughly uh, six years by or seven years, by which time the problems that were being addressed have moved on and developed and they're different. 
may be a useful exercise historically, but of absolutely little or no use uh, for contemporary problems that arise. And that's what people want, our answers now. So that's why we've stepped into the breach in order to do that. Now, we're calling ourselves a, a quasi-judicial inquiry because obviously we don't have powers of compulsion to produce documents, to produce witnesses. It's all entirely voluntary. But we are trying to abide by some basic rules, ensuring that witnesses are heard properly and that uh, any evidence that they wish to give, if we can't squeeze into the time available, you can work it out for yourselves. Four witnesses in the two-hour span means we don't have a lot of time to get through it. But it doesn't mean that what they have to say in their reports or their statements, which we have, uh, ca cannot be seen by the public because they will become part of a report which we will make at the end of the day. And obviously we won't have any interim conclusions because we want to hear all the evidence as quickly as we can. We're also conscious the public are responding massively. There are a lot of questions coming in. They will all be preserved and Lorna Hackett Council to the inquiry will endeavour now and again to get some of those questions asked, but it may not be possible. So don't think you're being ignored because you're not. And one other thing just before we, uh, Lorna Hackett, I hand over to her to call the first witness, uh, Professor Sir David King, is this. We have asked the government uh, whether they would like to participate in this, in the sense that they've been notified of this uh, inquiry and they have been told that we, they, we will be asking them for responses. And, uh, and the title of this particular session is the response of government. Well, we're waiting for a response from government, even to the fact that we're having the inquiry. I hope that silence doesn't indicate disinterest, arrogance, or an unwillingness to do anything at this moment. Uh, and we are we will pursue this. So uh, on the next session, I hope by then they'll have at least given us an acknowledgement, which you, the public, are giving in massive numbers. So thank you for joining us tonight. Now I'm going to hand over to Lorna Hackett for the first witness. Please would you you call Professor David King. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Can you hear me? I'm not on mute, am I? No. Okay. Uh, Professor Sir David King, thank you very much for your witness statement. Uh, I just want to clarify your occupation, please. I am the founder and chair of uh, a group which, which are called the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge. And you provided a witness statement for the purposes in this inquiry dated the 28th of February, is that correct? Correct. And um, just above your your surname and your your uh, signature, you confirmed that the opinions that you expressed represented your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that also correct? That is correct. Thank you. If I can just ask initially, what is independent sage, and why is there a need for independent sage? I was government chief scientific advisor from 2000 to 2007, and in that period, uh, what I did manage was to have an independent voice in the public domain. And uh, the two prime ministers I worked with in that time, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, fully accepted that and accepted that the function of that process was for me to have the trust of the public 
And I also, of course, had to have the trust of the cabinet and the government in that process. What I didn't perceive in the uh, initial period of this uh, outbreak in February, March last year, what I didn't perceive was that we even knew the membership of SAGE. Uh, that wasn't in the public domain. And nor did we have an independent account of what the advice from that committee, SAGE, was uh, given to the public. What I then decided was we needed to set up an independent SAGE group. Uh, and I think it's interesting to note that we immediately got an enormous interest from uh, the public domain, television, radio and press. And uh, I would say even today, many months after we were set up, we are approached four or five times a day to appear in the media, on the media. And uh, as I understand it, there was a report um, that in 2006, uh, which is still available on the Government Office for Science website, uh, predicting that before 2030, a global pandemic would emerge from wild animals through mutation that would lead to a virus being accommodated to the human body. Um, is, is that correct? That is correct. That was the single biggest uh, foresight program that I ran with 340 experts, including experts from uh, China and from Africa, where we thought this uh, outbreak would begin. And we met for uh, just over two years in that program. The World Health Organization also participated in that. So what would the standard public health response uh, be when faced with an epidemic such as that, uh, as, for example, advocated by the World Health Organization? The standard public response, as, for example, backed up by British experts when we were brought in fairly recently to West Africa with uh, an Ebola outbreak, is to, as quickly as possible, test people who might have the disease and isolate them from the rest of the population. Never easy, because grieving families do not like to be isolated from a dying member of the family. But that isolation process is the standard process at the beginning of an epidemic where a highly infectious virus is involved and where a deadly virus is involved. So isolation is the first part. At what stage does lockdown become necessary? Lockdown is a blunt instrument. When the uh, virus is spreading rapidly before the isolation process has been put in place, the instrument of lockdown was actually first used by China in uh, February last year to manage the outbreak in Wuhan. And uh, they, they ran a very successful lockdown process, which is why many, many governments in the world have, uh, have done it that way. But let me also say, that in South Korea, they managed to get the test and trace system and isolate system up and running very early on. The total number of deaths, I believe, in South Korea, even to date, the total number of deaths is less than 500. So what, what we have is an example of a country that did get the test and trace system operating as soon as they discovered the details of what was happening in China. And I think I would like to say the details were made available by Chinese scientists who published an extraordinary paper 
in the British Journal Lancet on January the 23rd. And all of that information was published so that the whole world could be aware of the infectivity rate, the death rate, etc., of this uh, of this new virus. So, uh, in terms of the the lockdown in the United Kingdom, as you said, uh, a number of countries adopted that approach. How did the timing of the lockdown here in the United Kingdom compare with other countries internationally? Can I first of all comment on the initial reaction of the government Indeed. When, when the outbreak occurred in China, even after that paper published on January the, the 23rd, um, I, I would say the, the reaction was extremely tardy. Uh, we know that the Prime Minister didn't attend the first 10, 11 meetings of COVID, we, we're sorry, of, of the, the meetings that are held in the face of an emergency in in the cabinet office. Cobra, Cobra, yeah. Cobra, thank you. I'm trying to say COVID and the COVID. Yes, it's all right. I know I do the same. <laughs> um, and and the, the I, I think it's fair to say that there was no understanding of the risk involved, uh, even into March the 3rd, uh, when at last, we were beginning to get uh, prime ministerial response to the outbreak. But when I say no response, if I can contrast this in Europe with Greece, uh, remember that this disease outbreak first occurred in Europe, in Italy. It was first discovered in northern Italy. Uh, and in, in Greece, during the month of February, they were sending ships and planes around the world to get all of the equipment into their hospitals that they needed in the face of this potential pandemic. So uh, by the time they got to March the 3rd, they were the first country in Europe to go into lockdown, but they had already equipped their hospitals with PPE equipment, uh, with ventilators, which they did not have before the outbreak. By contrast, uh, in, in Britain, even on 23rd of March, when we went into lockdown, we didn't have that equipment in place. Um, so when I say that the response was tardy, if we had gone into lockdown on the 3rd of March, the spread of the virus amongst the British population would have been massively less than we ended up with on March 23rd, when we did finally go into a lockdown. And I say this because we knew in, by the time we got to 7th or 10th of March that this disease in Britain was doubling in terms of the number of people going down with it every three to four days. So a delay of two weeks meant since every week was a quadrupling of the number of people going down with the virus, you can calculate just what the delay of two or three weeks meant to the spread of the virus around the country. But worse than that, we also allowed football games to proceed with, uh, with crowds attending. There was a foot football game in early March in, uh, in Liverpool against a team from Spain. And Spain was already known to have a significant outbreak and the Spanish had stopped crowds attending football matches at that point. But in Liverpool, we had a very big crowd from, uh, from Spain and also, of course, from Liverpool. And of course, the result of this was that the disease spread rapidly. Now, it is known that the disease doesn't spread 
very rapidly at all outdoors. But there's a kind of funny business that people think that a football crowd is out of doors all the time. Any one of us who's ever attended a football match, and I'm a supporter uh, actually of Liverpool, uh, would know that uh, before the match and after the match, we're all in a pub discussing how it's going to go and how it went. So, uh, and, and how do people get to these games? They travel in transport where you are very crowded. So there was that, there was of course the horse races that were held uh, much later. And th this looked to be, if, 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 this may be hindsight, it looked to be a way of spreading the disease around the country as quickly as possible. And the only explanation for that being a strategy would be if you were aiming for herd immunity. In other words, let's get this herd immunity out into the country as quickly as possible so we can get the epidemic over quickly. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from a member of the public. You've um, answered part of it um, in, in your last uh, response, but I'm just going to read the whole the whole question because the second part I think um, would be useful to uh, to address at this stage. Question from Meg Clark: The first lockdown was not imposed until the end of March 2020, well after awareness of the rapid spread of COVID-19. What effect, in your opinion, did this have on the rate of transmission of the virus? The need for many people to go into hospital and the resulting death rate. So uh, we've talked about the rate of transmission of the virus, but in terms of the, the delay of lockdown, uh, the need for people going into hospital and the resulting death rate, do you have any comments on that? Our hospitals became initially overwhelmed uh, by the time we got to April, May last year. Uh, and of course that uh, would never have happened if we'd have gone into lockdown earlier. And I would say that it's difficult to estimate how many lives could have been saved depending on at which point we had gone into lockdown earlier. But I, I would have said that at least 20,000 lives out of the 35,000 in the first wave could have been saved if we had gone into lockdown earlier. And I think that's a, a very simple statement to make not based on, on epidemiological modeling, but based on looking at other countries that acted much more quickly than we did. I, and it's not just South Korea and Greece, but I can also give you examples, of course, Australia, New Zealand, where the management of the process was not only the test, trace and isolate, but it was also closing the borders to incoming people. So managing, you could fly into, for example, Greece over that period after they went into lockdown March the 3rd, if you were a Greek citizen going home, but you were then put into a hotel in Athens for 14 days, tested before and after, and, and then you could go to your home. And once you went home, of course, in Greece, the lockdown meant there was no traveling between islands, no traveling between mainland and islands, the traveling was very severely restricted. Now, in those countries, the death rates well below a thousand in total, in total. So what should lockdown mean in practice? Um, and on what basis can restrictions or should restrictions be relaxed thereafter? In any lockdown, we all know that we have to manage to keep the population fed, 
the water systems need to be operating, electricity systems need to be operating. In any lockdown, there are key people who have to be at work. And of course, that was managed in our lockdowns as well as, as in other countries. And of course, what do you do about the children of those key workers? Uh, they could go to school. So schools only had the key workers' children there. Lockdown would mean that everyone stays in their homes uh, and they, they, as you know, you could venture outdoors, but you could venture outdoors to exercise. You could go outdoors, uh, preferably wearing a mask and keeping more than two meters from everybody else. This would be standard lockdown procedure. But I think the, the next part of a lockdown procedure is also managing ports of entry. And frankly, until very recently, throughout this pandemic, we have never managed our ports of entry. There was one reason um, given um, to justify the delay in locking down this country, and that was um, the term behavioural or pandemic fatigue. Is there any basis um, for that justification? Quite the reverse. If, if you pause in going into a lockdown, you're going to be in lockdown for much longer because the virus would have spread amongst a much larger percentage of the population. So if you want to give people a short lockdown, you do it very quickly and you come out of it very quickly. And let me also say the other reason often given is uh, the economy. And I, I do think this was a big discussion in the cabinet uh, at the time about even avoiding going into a lockdown and allowing herd immunity to spread was an argument for maintaining the economy. Again, just the reverse is the case. The longer you wait for a lockdown, the longer the lockdown will be and the longer the economy is hit, which is why those countries that reacted as we did very slowly, and I'm referring to the United States and Brazil as two examples, have suffered the most in terms of the number of fatalities, the number of people in hospitals, and the hit on the economy. Right? So the two are interrelated. Turning now, if I may, to uh, find, test, trace, isolate and support, FTTIS. Uh, it, it's not a concept that is new to this pandemic, is it? It's been a core public health function for, for a long period of time. Uh, could you explain what the core elements for constructing an effective find, test, trace, uh, isolate and support system are? Right. So, so the first thing is you must locate everyone who's going down with the symptoms. Now, if you want to do that, and in those parts of the, the world where they did this effectively, massive advertising was put out to explain what the key symptoms were associated with the disease. You will know that people who went down with the disease in Britain in March didn't even record their having the disease. They didn't even, uh, one of my sons got the disease at that time. He went to that horse race in Cheltenham, came back, got the disease. And, and what, what, he's never told his GP that he, he got it. The general practice system 
has never been involved even to this day in, uh, in making those records. So I, I think the first thing is find quickly those who have the symptoms by getting people to freely let us know, let the health system know. The second part of it, test, we must within 24 hours, and this was projected forward as the objective in government, within 24 hours, the results of all these tests must be known and fed back to the people involved. Now, a proper system, once you've told the people you have the disease, you also get their contacts over the previous two weeks and contact them to put, tell them to isolate as well. But the right way to do this is to use shoe leather. You use local people to go around locally to those uh, people who've been found with the disease and get them across a good distance at the front door to explain whether or not they're able to isolate at home. That's the first question you have to ask. You will know that there are many people who live in extended families where there are more than three generations living in one house and the most vulnerable are the most elderly people. So you wouldn't say to somebody isolate in that home if you were then putting at risk the older people in the household, which means that uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is your economic situation? If you isolate, will you be able to continue to keep yourself and your family alive? If you get a negative answer to either of those things, then the government should step in and put those people in hotels where they are fed and given uh, health care so that they, they are looked after uh, while they're there. Um, and this is incumbent on, the, on the, the state, I believe, and it shouldn't be a cost to the individual. But in addition, people asked to isolate who cannot afford to stop earning their weekly wages, for example, should, of course, also be financially supported so their families can manage. So I, I, I'm doing this rather slowly just to spell it out because you will know that, uh, that none of this has really been done properly going forward in time. It is no good getting some call process, perhaps from another country, to phone up an individual who has been found to have the disease or has been in contact with someone and simply tell them to isolate. That, that is simply not working, never has worked. And we know that even Baroness Dita Harding has said that a very high percentage of people have not isolated. Now, I don't know whether she's implying by that that it's those people at fault, but I believe it's the fault of the system that has emerged. So when, when we get to the end of your line, we come to uh, uh, isolate and support, and the support system has never been properly in place. And so from the beginning, we have not had a proper fine test, trace and isolate system. And when I say from the beginning, initially it was conducted as is expected by the National Health Service, um, but they couldn't manage this very severe outbreak due to the long uh, wait before there was any action. And so the, the system managed to test no more than 3,000 a day when there were many more cases being reported each day. 
And so that system was actually abandoned when we went in, uh, into lockdown. And so for a few months, we had no test, trace, and isolate system at all. And then we all heard that the test, trace, and isolate system had been given without any, uh, without any competition, had been given to a group of companies, uh, including Serco. And these companies had zero healthcare experience. I, I just want to emphasize that because we do have a national health service. We do have a general practice system. And if we had broken down the, the whole FTTIS system into local areas where people know their GPs, trust their GPs, uh, where the system works well, I believe properly funding National Health Service and GP system to run that would have been very effective, but it was never done. And finally in May, it wasn't till May last year that these companies were announced that would do it. Yes, indeed. Um, the Independent Sage report from the 12th of May, um, there's a quote in it which says this pandemic starts and ends with communities and of course it was only just over two weeks after that that the centralized uh, test and trace system was announced. Um, with that in mind how did the UK's test and trace system differ from that implemented in other countries and what evidence is there that the government sought to learn from international expertise and experience in that regard? At the time that the <coughs> Excuse me. At the time that the announcement was made, all of us on Independent Sage were simply amazed. In the middle of the biggest pandemic for over a hundred years in this country, we set up new companies with no healthcare experience, private companies, to run the most important way to manage any epidemic or pandemic like from scratch. Uh, I believe that was a disastrous decision, a disastrous decision. I think you, 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 I go back to National Health Service, the care system that we have. The problem is that that had been underfunded when the uh, government came in in 2010 and announced the need for an austerity budget. The National Health Service was hit and hit hard. And what the National Health Service had to do was focus on delivering healthcare, health systems for the immediate future. And all of the work that was done after that report that uh, we were talking about in 2006 to prepare for a pandemic was actually lost. The equipment in our hospitals was, uh, was, didn't get kept in the hospital. And in fact, by the time we got to the pandemic, we were totally ill-prepared. But we could have done it if the funding had been found at that moment. Uh, I'm going to um, ask you one more question because I'm mindful of the time and I want to give the panel the opportunity to ask some questions of, uh, I'm sure there'll be some from them. Uh, but I'm just going to ask a, a question from a, a member of the public. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase, so I hope this gentleman will forgive me. Uh, do you consider the decision to open up fully all schools in England will inevitably result in up to 30,000 deaths, as indicated by the view of SAGE in the minutes of its 79 meeting recently published? 
If so, what actions should be taken to avoid this? Yes, I, I'm going to say that I'm not the right person to ask that question. There are members of uh, Independent Sage who could answer it much, much more uh, clearly than I can. But what, what I do believe, and we have published papers on this as well, what I do believe is that it is asking for trouble to get, send children back into schools where the schools are unprepared for keeping children in low-density classrooms. And here I'm talking, of course, about the uh, schools uh, outside the, the public school system, uh, where the class numbers are much, much smaller, the uh, buildings have much larger rooms and so on. In most of our schools, the children are in classes of 30, 35, and in those classes, they're too close together. It's often said that the disease doesn't impact on children under the age of 12. And the problem is it does, they pick up the disease, they, do, they are spreaders, and it puts any adult that is in charge of them, looking after them uh, in, in, at risk. And these include not only the teachers and the school workers, but also, of course, the parents. And so I, I don't believe that this has been thought through properly. I don't think we've seen the investment going into allow schools to operate in such a way that they could manage the epidemic properly. I certainly think, for example, that uh, masks ought to be worn by school children, um, but this shouldn't be a voluntary thing. This should be a decision that the government makes in order to cut down the risks, this, the really serious risks of this outbreak occurring. Professor Sir David King, thank you very much for answering my questions. I'm afraid that's all I've got time for, but I'm going to hand you back to Mr Mansfield, uh, who may have some questions for you, as will other members of the panel. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor. Uh, I'm, I'm also conscious of the time. I'm sorry, it's, it's under these circumstances. There are quite a lot of questions, but I'm going to try and put an initial question before asking the other panellists if they'd like to ask, uh, as a sort of roll-up question. So it's in several parts. So it would normally constitute maybe two or three questions, but I'm trying to put it in one. In, interestingly, at the beginning of your evidence, you indicated that in 2006, there was a foresight program and exactly what has happened, uh, in a sense, was predicted. It's zoonotics, however you want to call it. In other words, the transmission from animals to human beings uh, of a virus, uh, which might turn into a pandemic. Now, starting from there, you then get Cygnus in 2016, where they have some sort of practice run, but they don't appear to be looking at a pandemic. They don't appear to be looking at what you'd reported in 2006. And Jeremy Hunt has gone public and said, we prepared for the wrong virus. Well, that doesn't look too hopeful. So then we bring it up to date, because one of the questions I think that the public concerned about is what appears to have been a government without a strategy. In other words, it's knee-jerk, it's crisis management from one to the next. The question I have therefore is, it seems, is this fair to say that had there been proper preparation on the back of what was known before this ever got to China or anywhere else, and had there, you could have had the possibility of a singular policy, not Today you can go to the pub, tomorrow you can't. Today you, you can have schools open, tomorrow you can't, and so on. You have a singular policy all the way through 
so that in fact it's it's preconditions for that mask and so on and would that be possible to have a singular possible policy and strategy rather than a series as i've put it as knee-jerk reactions finally attack on to this we're facing according to the news today the new variant which is uh, the kent variant b117 is going to provide uh, even quicker transmission and in even more deadly results so where do we go with that so it's a sort of continuum here. I'm trying to build up a picture of how should government, a government, be dealing with this? Well, it is very strange that the advice from that 2006 survey, which the WHO picked up on, and you will know that the WHO responded very, very quickly to this outbreak and responded with very, very good advice. And I can put your two questions together. If you look at the advice that the WHO gave, I believe it was on 3rd of March, it is a detailed piece of advice to every country on how to operate. In about the middle of March, I remember watching with some disbelief when the deputy CMO was asked a question uh, from uh, the BBC reporter which was, why haven't we followed the WHO advice? And she said, because that advice is for developing countries. Uh. In other words, as a developed country, we were in a position where we could develop our own strategy and we didn't have to follow that. And, and frankly, that is absurd. It's a very dangerous way to respond to a situation of that kind. In that publication of January 23rd, we actually had all the information we needed to prepare for a large pandemic, which is exactly what other countries, the countries I've already mentioned, did. So, I mean, for example, Greece followed the WHO advice to the letter all the way down the line. So I think what I'm saying is, uh, yes, it, it, it didn't look as if a strategy was emerging. Uh, we, we now have a form of a strategy in which we're told at which dates we will open schools and so on. Um, and this is dates leading rather than data. Uh, it, it was the WHO never made it that specific. For example, and I haven't mentioned this before, when should we have come out of the lockdown? I was asked that on television and radio many times, and I always said, when the find, test, trace, isolate and support system is operating so that we know we're quickly separating people who have been exposed to the disease or have it from the rest of the population, not before. And so we got the disease down in September last year to a level that's much lower than where we are now. And there's the horrible fact of the second and third waves. Even though we now feel as if we're coming out of this wave, we're nowhere near as close to the where we were in September. But we came out of that lockdown without having our FTTIS system operating, which meant there were people with the disease freely walking about amongst the population. We take down the lockdown process. It was bound to spread. So... Sorry, I think I've missed the last bit of your question. No, the last bit was really, we're now facing, it, it would appear, I'm only getting on reports today about B117, that uh, the latest evidence shows that it's far more transmissible and also uh, more deadly is the way it was put. 
So if we're facing that, uh, again, should there be uh, a strategy not, well, on June we'll all come out of it, as the date point, should there be a different strategy now being developed in relation to that? Because we're going to go on getting more and more variants that are going to, as it were, develop in their own manner. I, I, there's nobody in the independent stage group who will be surprised by my answer. The strategy is FTTIS. If, if you're right. in a position where within 24 hours, everyone has been isolated and supported, that is when you come out of these lockdown processes, and not before. And, and by the way, this isn't a new wheel I'm inventing here. This is a, this is a wheel that's already been invented. Uh, I, I just think there is no other way to manage an epidemic but by separating those with the disease from the rest of us. And of course, the other way is this blunt instrument of everyone going into lockdown. So nobody favors that. Can I just make one further point, which is, I do believe one of the problems which still exists is the people who feel we should never go into lockdown. And clearly I believe the, there are people who say this on cabinet, there are people who did believe anyway that we should never go into lockdown, that rather we should just let the disease run and put up with the number of deaths and, and people who have long COVID, etc. Now, of course, you will know that the government put up a symbol during the initial lockdown, save the National Health Service. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I think we all thought the National Health Service was there to save us. But apparently what brought us into a lockdown situation was not the number of deaths, but it was that the National Health Service was full. It was not able to take on all of these ill people. I'm going to pause for a moment and ask my fellow panelists if they have any questions. Right, uh, Professor Modi, please. Thank you very much. So, so David, I, I'm, I think we will all accept that there have been a, a number of mistakes made over the course of the last year in respect of government actions, but I'm interested in the views of independent SAGE as to why this should be. So for example, do you think that um, government received the wrong advice from scientists? Let's go back to March, February, March, 2020. Do you think they received the wrong advice from scientists? Do you think they received the right advice but failed to understand its implications or ignored the implications? Or do you think that there was a deliberate strategy being followed by government which was either, for example, on the basis of a blind ideological belief that uh, the private sector, for example, was better placed than the NHS, than the public health service to deal with things? Or do you think that this was simply a a, uh, that, that ministers acted in self-interest um, in the view that perhaps this was an opportunity to, dare I say it, profit from a national crisis. So I've given you a range of, of possible reasons as to why we should have seen such extraordinary behaviour. And I would really be interested in uh, your reflections and those of independent sage as to, as to why, why should this have been the case? Very, very important question. And all I'm going to say is now, if we look at the membership of SAGE, it's very heavy in epidemiologists and it's very light in healthcare experts. Uh, so I think what, what I don't understand about that is, 
supposing I was chief scientific advisor at the time, I would have gone for healthcare experts. Uh, I would have gone for people who understand about virus. It's, in fact, the membership of the group that I put together is, uh, is an example of that. Because we knew from that paper in January 23rd what the spread rate of this disease would be. We didn't need our own epidemiologists, all of them, to go away and work away on their computers. At a time of a disease, getting ahead of the outbreak is critical, moving quickly. You move with what information you have at the time. Uh, now, I don't, I don't believe that the information coming through in terms of advice could have been optimal at the time. Uh, but at the same time, I am quite sure that everything else you mentioned was operating. It's not a straightforward answer, um, but the answer is because there was very little leadership on the issue. It, it's not as if one person was making the decisions. I think there's time for, well, we're running out of time. But Dr. Ernie, you have a question. Thank you, and thanks, uh, Professor David King. I have a question that is in two parts and related to both of your expertise. So one aspect around the science advisory mechanisms and the other aspect in terms of future um, emergencies. So firstly, this question is really about whether you think um, the science advisory mechanisms as we have it at the moment is fit for complex um, challenges of this nature where you have this cross societal disruption at once rather than in a particular part of the country and if not what aspects you think need adapting or updating to better cater for emergencies of this nature in the future and related to that um, thinking about the lessons from our response to this particular emergency, uh, you know, we know that we will have more emergencies like this in, in, in the future, um, not just human health emergencies, but particularly environmental health emergencies and the interaction between the two. We now know, hopefully we've learned that, you know, we're not ex ex exempt from the global context of this. So how, in what way should we be thinking about preparing our responses for those kind of um, emergencies in terms of science advice, in terms of preparedness, and in terms of building population resilience, you know, bearing in mind what we know about exposure and vulnerability um, factors and inequalities. So it's compound. Thank you, Dr. Ernie. I'm going to answer quickly because I'm due on the BBC any minute now. So let, let me just very quickly say, First and foremost is an understanding from the Phillips Commission report that I got. Uh, it was published in November or December 2000 on the BSE crisis and the upshot of it was a, a, an investigation into how the government had handled it. Phillips Commission report is very critical of how the, the BSE crisis was handled. The major criticism was the science community, the government kept saying, we're following the advice of scientists, but the scientific community and government was never allowed to talk to the public. And so I think the first thing, and this was my mantra when I was in government, is openness, honesty, and transparency with the public as well as with government and the cabinet. And this, this was accepted all the period that I was in government. And during the foot and mouth disease epidemic, when Blair simply said, you get out and handle it, I was the one on television and radio every day, not Blair. 
and I wasn't standing next to him and uh, perhaps saying what he was hoping I would say. So I, I think openness, honesty, transparency. We, we've now got, since that period, chief scientific advisors in every government department. We should be in a very strong position. So what happened after the government came in in 2010 was this ability of science advisors brought into government as chief scientists to go into the public domain without being told not to was removed. It was removed. And, and so the chief scientists are no longer free. We have, to, we have to now go through the communications procedure to get permission, and the permission is never granted without an oversight of what you're going to say. Now, that, that, that is not the way to get the public trust in what the government is doing, and nor is it the way to get good advice because believe me, when you have to put your advice in the public domain, you get faced with a lot of criticism. And I got hammered very hard in the public domain during that foot and mouth disease epidemic. But I think that's the best way to operate. Well, may I thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm sorry it's taken a bit longer. And I wish you luck with your BBC interview. And do let them know that we're existing as a COVID inquiry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I'd like to hand back to uh, Lorna Hackett for the next witness, who is Luby Akinola, please. Hello. Can you hear me? Am I on mute? No, I'm not on mute. Great. Um, is it is it Lobby Akinola? Yes. Hi. Um, thank you for your witness statement. I understand that you um, made a witness statement uh, on the 4th of March 2021. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And uh, above your signature, you've said, I confirm that this statement is true to the best of my knowledge and belief. Yes, that's correct. Um, in what capacity are you appearing to this inquiry? Um, I believe I'm appearing as a member of the um, COVID-19 bereaved Families for Justice group, and then we're campaigning for a public inquiry into the government response of the pandemic. So, uh, what what um, what was the basis of you deciding to um, to become a, a lead member of that uh, of that group? Um, so, I joined the group because in April twenty sixth, um, unfortunately, I lost my father to the COVID nineteen uh, virus, um, and I joined the group in the hope that we could get an inquiry to get some understanding into uh, mistakes I believe that could have been made in response and prevent them from happening again. I'm very sorry to hear about the death of your father and my condolences. Um, could you could you tell the inquiry a little bit about the circumstances that led to your father's death? Yes. Um, so my father was a um, he was a worker. He worked for Mencap, the charity um, assisting people with learning difficulties. So he was a key worker during the first wave of the pandemic. Um, along with my mother and my brothers who are all living together at home. They were all key workers, so we're not exactly certain how the virus kind of entered the household. But um, my dad got ill at home and over the course of, he got ill in early April and then over the course of the next uh, two, just over two weeks, um, he was at home kind of deteriorating. And during that period, he was calling the 111 health service and also spoke to his GP um, 
to just get advice on what he should be doing and whether or not he needed to go to hospital. Um, and he was advised to stay at home. And there was a period of time when they thought he might have a lung infection and they sent him some antibiotics. But unfortunately, um, he then died shortly after um, receiving the antibiotics and passed away at home. So, um, I mean, uh, so did he ever go to hospital at all? With, with um, no, my, he was at home throughout the entire um, period of time. So the advice was always to stay at home from one one. Yes, one. yes. Um, and in terms of the, um, the I, I, you talk really eloquently about, um, you know, how the vulnerability of key workers which obviously you know in terms of your family everyone being key workers um, and the fact that your father kept working down the during the lockdown um it's it it's in your witness statement could you could you just talk a little bit about i'm going to ask you a bit about um the work that you do with the um with the families for justice now but you can talk about from your perspective the effect on the black community um, uh, of covid yes um sure so I would say that um, the pandemic has kind of highlighted what I believe are social, socioeconomic inequalities that exist in society. Um, and we consequently have um, uh, the black community, especially, um, has been really affected by the pandemic. Um, we're seeing a higher rate of death in the black community and other communities of color versus um, the white population. I think. Um, speaking from my personal experience, it's been somewhat difficult um, to kind of see this because um, there are many inequalities that people are already aware of. Um, and now these inequalities are costing the lives of um, people of color. So for my personal experience, my family, we're a big family, family of seven, everyone was living at home apart from me. Um, like we said, they're all key workers. Um, and that is a trend that you see in the like when you look at the statistics that people of color tend to be in front facing uh, serving roles um so that put them in higher risk of being exposed to the pandemic um they were my family or people who are key workers didn't have access to ppe of course no one did at the time but there's also the concern of um how appropriate and how how able the um, medical services are to diagnose and treat conditions in um, black bodies and how that is dealt with because again we see that there are in when you're looking at data that there's concerns of um, the treatment of black bodies and people of color in the medical services and uh, a very famous example is the um, mortality rate of black mothers versus white mothers is significantly higher and there's concerns that um, it's like I, unconscious biases and things that people aren't quite aware of exist, um, influencing the care and level of care that um, Black people receive. So, for example, it's often seen that Black people uh, are more tolerant of pain, which therefore means that they're given less pain medication for conditions or they are considered the pain is seen as a less serious indicator of, um, of seriousness of an issue. Um, 
and then having situations like the public health England inquiry into the effects of the pandemic into the Bain community being delayed in this publication by the government breeds, I think, distrust between the community and the government, which is can only be deleterious in an effort to control and mitigate the spread of the pandemic. So I think in terms of speaking from my personal experience as a black man in the UK and how I think the pandemic has affected this community, I think it's highlighting underlying um, concerns. And it's just now that these concerns are quite becoming more apparent because the consequences um, death in a lot of instances, whereas before it might have just been, um, I don't know, discomfort or things like that, um, if that makes sense. Um, there's in, in part of your witness statement, right at the end, there's a link to a, a, an article in The Guardian um, about blue lips and black skin. Did a standard 111 question help cause uh, Olufemi Dakinola's death from COVID-19? Do you want to yes. tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, so it was a concern that my family had because after my father died, my mom called up um, trying to find out if she could get tested um, because tests were starting to become available because she was concerned that if she also died, she'd have five children without parents. Um, and one of the questions that she was given during the call to see whether or not she should go in for testing was um, asking her if her lips were blue. Um, and she answers she didn't know, came downstairs to ask his children on my lips, we obviously responded, we can't tell. Um, and obviously that's supposed to be an indication of hypoxia. Um, and that, I don't know, obviously I can't speak to the one-on-one -on -one training or the what people do or how other people have experienced interactions one-on-one, -on -one, but that raised concerns for our family because if hypoxia is a very serious condition and if for someone is hypoxic, they need to receive medical care very quickly otherwise they will pass away and if an indicator obviously there'll be further questions but if an indicator is are your lips blue um even myself i don't know if black lips go blue and if they do i don't know what that looks like so for that to be part of the system then raises a question is the system appropriate for dealing with people of color and how they are responding to this pandemic and this is starting to, i don't Again, I can't speak to one one system, but we also see that um, there's been reports of things like pulse oximeters um, reporting high levels of blood oxygen in people of color because they've been designed and tested on white skin. And this is a pandemic that robs people of their oxygen. So it's these kind of things that raise concerns that as a person of color in this country, am I going to receive the medical attention that I need because of underlying and previously maybe unaware um, considerations that haven't haven't been included in my care. Um, you lost your father to COVID. How does it make you feel that the Prime Minister joked about ventilator procurement as Operation Last Gasp and declined to join the European PPE scheme while frontline NHS workers went without adequate PPE? Um, Again, personally speaking, I would say um, it, it it makes me quite angry. I think politely I've described it as frustration, but that is an understatement. Um, it's very, very difficult to be in 
the midst of a trauma and a life-changing event and see, I mean, my family had to sit and watch my dad die for two weeks. And then you see the leader of the country stand up and make jokes about the fact that people are being robbed of their breath is something that's very difficult to see. And it's not something that I think you forget. Um, I believe that the role of the government and the prime minister is to is a service that I believe that leadership is service and that his role is to help protect and care for the people of this country. And in our hour of need, he saw fit to crack wise and decided that to approach something that clearly um, was serious, people around the world were dying and he approached the situation with what I believe a level is a level of arrogance um, that he thought that somehow he had a better system, a better idea. Um, we had people, the doctors and nurses, who constantly in this country go undervalued and undersupported, and they needed help to do their job. He called on them to risk their lives to protect the people of this country, and then decided to not provide the support they needed. Um, we saw the pictures of doctors, of nurses using bin bags to protect themselves as PPE. I know for my dad, he would take his winter gloves and scarf with him to, to work. And it's just, it's insulting that he, the prime minister would stand up and make jokes, um, say that, say things like he's done the best or he did everything that he could when you can clearly see that that's not the case. Um, that he, they didn't procure PPE, we closed borders late, we didn't go into lockdown, they has scientific advice is being ignored time and again. So I personally, um, I, I, I feel a, a deep sense of anger um, regarding statements like Operation Last Gas, because this is so far from a laughing matter that I don't understand what even caused a statement like that to enter his mind, let alone leave his mouth. Um, well, thank you very much for answering uh, my questions. I'm afraid those are all I've got time for. Sure, um, but I'm you. sure that the panel will have some additional questions for you. So, Obi um, Akinola, I'm going to pass you back to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, a, a good evening. We all feel for your situation. And we had someone last week or the week before in our first session speaking about similar things. I, I wonder if I could, I'm just going to ask one question. Sure. If, if it's one you feel you really can't answer because it's too general and obviously say so, but we're dealing with the government's response. So you, you are part of a, a, and a lead member of a, of a group of bereaved who, who want justice. Yes. And the question is, if you're able to say on behalf of the group, what, what would you see should be the government's response to justice for the bereaved? What would you want? Um, Are you able to, to answer that or is it too general? I, I think I can give some indication. I mean, I can't speak for every member of the group because at this point we're quite significant and large. But um, I think, well, I'll say primarily the, the group has been looking for um, the inquiry so that we could prevent reoccurrences of mistakes. But I believe that in terms of justice, we're looking for people to be held accountable. So we're trying to understand where mistakes were made, if those mistakes could have been avoided, why those mistakes happened. And to understand that um, 
to, I, I think that what we're looking for in terms of justice is to see that people are held to account for the actions and their responses during this, this pandemic. So depending on what has taken place is going to affect how the response that you're looking for in terms of justice. And I can't speak to like specifics, but what I would say is that we've seen in examples previously calls for um, members of parliament to resign because they broke the lockdown um, during this pandemic. Um, that's an example of, I believe, that holding someone to account to say that you have a role as a leader to at least, at the very least, uphold the rules that you're applying to the people. If you can't do that, then you're not fit for the position. Um, and that I, that's only one example. Um, if, I mean, I can't, again, I don't know if it, like, legally what's been taking place and what's required of the government in terms of their response to the pandemic. But I believe that um, when, we're, when we say we're looking for justice, it's a sense that um, the people who have been responsible for how the government responded to this uh, pandemic are held to account, are made to stand up and say, take responsibility for their actions. And that those actions don't go without consequence if, if that is what is deemed to be appropriate and an appropriate consequence for what has taken place. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it, um, it most certainly does. And it will, I think, inform us in terms of seeing if we can get some accountability in this inquiry. Thank you. So we will go on asking for people to come. Now, do the other uh, other members of the panel have anything that they'd like to ask? Yes, Dr. Una, please. Thank you, Mr. Akinola, for your um, for your set for your statement and our deepest condolences for your loss. Thank um, you. I really, I mean, obviously, your 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 expression and your feelings are very understandable. I wonder what your thoughts are on building on the question from, from Ms. Mansfield in terms of starting to rebuild the trust. So thinking forward into um, future pandemics and to make sure that, you know, don't widen inequality. What do you think, given where you are now and the experiences you've had would be needed to even beyond in addition to justice, which is so critical, um, would be important to rebuild trust, particularly in the in, in people of colour communities, but in general, um, both in government, but also in the medical care and, and the healthcare system. Um, thank you for that question, um, Dr. Oni. Um, I think that one thing that's a crucial to but rebuilding trust is transparency. Um, I believe that throughout this entire pandemic process, there's been some, there's been an obscuring of the motivation reason behind actions. Um, so a transparency, like um, Sir Professor King was saying that he, having scientists being the people to present the information, to actually speak directly to the public. And then specifically when we're looking at the communities of color, I believe that you need to show that the concerns are, that first they're being heard, and then second, that their concerns are being addressed and being responded to. This is not the first time that communities of colour have said, have said there, are, there are medical concerns and that they have issues that are being ignored. And what we've seen now is that 
because they haven't been addressed, lives have been lost. And I believe that if you want to rebuild that trust, the first thing you have to do is come to the table and say, I am listening to you. Actually listen and then act on that information. Because it's things like, like I said before about there's recently, well, last year, there was a student doctor who wrote that publication about skin conditions in black skin. That's an example of saying that actually I'm that's actionable information that this is not going to be repeated that we've learned from the mistake and that we will now make sure that going forward your conditions your skin color your environment is taken into account so I believe that if the government wants to rebuild the trust they first need to come to the table and listen and then be transparent in that response. Make sure that people are aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because as long as we have these kind of like press conferences where someone kind of comes up, stands up and just dictates what we should be doing with no clear explanation, especially in this day and age of the internet where people can get information from everywhere, it makes it very difficult to build trust in that person giving that information if you don't know why or how and especially if you don't believe that they've considered you in their response yeah thank you very much indeed for coming i'm going to cut it a bit short because i think sure there's a necessity for a five minute break can i just check that that is so yes it is okay well <laughs> thank you thank you very much indeed i think we may be seeing a little more of you okay thank you thank you apologize for unlawful conduct which seems an extraordinary position for a cabinet minister to take why haven't you well no i, I won't apologize because to apologize would imply that i do something differently and given the choices that we were faced with in april and may and uh, when there were very very serious problems with access to ppe and some people were uh, were going without uh, and the team were working so hard to have taken some of the team off those life-saving, that life-saving work in order to complete the paperwork on time instead of just over a fortnight late, that would have been wrong. Uh, and uh, well, I, I you were found guilty of unlawful conduct. It seems to me a strange situation where a cabinet minister representing a government is found guilty of unlawful conduct, but sees there's nothing to apologize for. I mean, surely if you've broken the law, you should just say, look, I'm sorry I broke the law, but you seem determined not to do that. Well, the reason is because if I were given my time again, and if I was given the choice between doing work that saved lives or filing the paperwork at exactly the right date, I would have done the same, and so would you. Well, a very thought-provoking first half of this session and uh, we've now had a five-minute break, so I would like to press on with our next two witnesses. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I will hand straight away to Lorna Hackett to call Jan Shaw, please. Hello. Hello. Is that are you, Jan Short? I am indeed, yes. Thank you. Um, and what is your occupation? Uh, I am the General Secretary of the National Pensioners Convention. And is it right that you made a witness statement for the purposes of this inquiry on the 5th of March? I did, yes. 
and uh, above your signature, uh, you have confirmed that the statement is true to the best of your knowledge and belief. Is that correct? Yeah. And you've also very helpfully exhibited uh, a letter from the National Pensions Convention dated the 9th of February 2021, uh, which was sent directly to uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. <coughs> is that right? Yes. Um, have you received an acknowledgement or a response to that letter out of interest? Uh, none. Nothing. We never do. We never get any replies to our letters at all. Have you resent it? Um, no, we are waiting now for get this over, see where we go. Uh, it, the, a copy did also go to Matt Hancock. It wasn't just to Boris Johnson. Um, but, you know, I, I think perhaps sometimes our letters are too challenging for them. So um, thank you for your witness statement. I want to start, if I may, with um, the, one of the questions um, today and the main purpose of today is how did the government respond? Now, um, can you set out uh, from the point of view of the National Pensioners Convention, how the government responded to COVID-19? From our point of view, um, if we look at what was happening uh, across the world, and taking notice, our, our members are very good television watchers. They are up with the news. Uh, they take a great interest. Um, and we were wondering just when we were going to be receiving any information. Um, that was the first thing. Then we started to get, you know, in the press, which sometimes is not always friendly, but. We're starting to get things in the press about, you know, scientific uh, advice and the government um, and Mr. Johnson not being able to attend the COBRA meetings and not a lot of information at all. And people were getting a little bit worried and a bit scared. Then all of a sudden, um, you know, out comes this uh, strategy, so you would speak. Uh, to say that all people over the age of 70, um, but mainly those with underlying health conditions, needed to stay at home. Yeah. And that is when we started to think, well, hang on. Um, you know, age does not define us as frail or vulnerable. Mm. There are other sections of communities that are... Uh, frail and vulnerable because of their health conditions. And that is the same in the older people's population. We're not a homogenous group. Um, you know, not all of us uh, sit at home, not all of us go on Saga holidays. A lot of us do a lot of volunteering. Uh, the whole of the National Pensions Convention, apart from our staff, are all volunteers. We volunteer our time. So we were beginning to think, actually, is that, is that just a little bit discriminatory in terms of lumping together an age group and restricting people due to their age? So that was the first area that we were very concerned with. We've always been concerned and we've always been very active. Uh, one of our major policies uh, is around health and care. Um, and we have published our own uh, national care service policy, which is about having a national care service alongside the NHS, free at the point of need, funded by taxation. So we were always concerned 
because we've always known the crisis in care homes that have built up over decades, not, not just the last year, but absolutely decades. Fragmented services, care homes closing, um, care homes being made bankrupt, um, being sold off. And it's like older people are a little bit of a package. You know, when, when older people are living in care homes, it is their home. So when a provider decides they don't want to do it anymore, they can close it. Now with a school, if you want to close a school, the legal position is you have to give a year's notice. There is no required notice to close a care home. And if you look at the people inside those care homes, whose only home it is, and the stress of moving and not knowing where your future belongs, and if you have a family, will you be near to them or will you have moved somewhere else in the country? So we were already concerned about the issues and the crisis in care. And of course, it came to fruition. It's an unfortunate you know, truth of the matter that everything that we said once we started to look at this pandemic actually came true. And the devastation that care home residents uh, have suffered and are still suffering yeah, it absolutely un unacceptable. Um, shouldn't have happened, needn't have happened, and should never happen again. So um, just for anybody that, that isn't aware, could you explain a little bit about uh, what happened in terms of care homes um, when the pandemic hit? And, and you talk specifically about the ring of steel in your witness statement. Um, well, already when the pandemic hit, uh, care homes were really, really struggling. Um, and our organisation, along with Age UK and lots of other organisations, charities that work on behalf of older people and academics have been saying to the government for a long time, you need to deal with the crisis in care. Yeah? It needs to be properly funded. If you look at 16, at least £16 billion being taken out of the care uh, funding over decades, then you could see uh, there's short staffed, that, um, not their fault, but a lot of the staff are not qualified. It isn't their fault, but they're doing a huge responsible job, hugely responsible job, um, and they get no value for that. So you're talking about a fragmented system by individual care home providers that are already struggling before the pandemic hit. Yeah. It hit and there were older people who were sent into hospital because they were really, really poorly, yeah? That is fine, but then all of a sudden we find that they are imposing blanket DNRs. And um, what's DNR? Just Do not resuscitate order, sorry. Um, which And we do understand that those elderly people with uh, complex um, conditions, it is very kind of unsafe sometimes to resuscitate, but it just seems that the human rights that they should have of choice, being able to talk to uh, someone, a, a family, an advocate if they don't have a family, um, just to be given heads up about what that actually means about signing that piece of paper, yeah? It is life-changing to sign 
a do not resuscitate order. And they were just being blanketly, you know, distributed. So that was our other issue that we took to the press. Um, then um, Mr. Johnson said, oh, we put a ring of steel around care homes. And we thought, right, so what does that mean? Well, it meant actually nothing. Because the next thing that happened is older people have been discharged to care homes without any testing, negative or otherwise, for COVID. And then we see that contagion raging through uh, care homes leading to, you know, the amount of deaths, which I think are coming to about 25% of the total now in care homes. Um, and there were, you know, Nightingale hospitals set up that were empty. However, we do know they didn't have the staff to cover them. But then there were hotels and other places they could have looked at instead of sending it into care homes. Because what happened, once that contagion got hold, no one in a, in a resident in a care home had their underlying health conditions, you know, looked after. Staff were just too, you know, staff were going off sick. We use an agency staff. There was staff moving between care homes. So it was a really hotbed of kind of spreading the infection, if you like. So we were not too happy and we do not believe that was a ring of steel. Um, so in the circumstances, what could the government have done better to protect older people? I think the government um, has, a, for the last decade, has not had a listening ear to anyone. Um, I mean, we've heard the words arrogant tonight, and I think it's either arrogance or incompetence. I don't know which. Uh, they can make the choice between the two. But as I said before, the, the National Pensions Convention and a lot of other people have been begging the government to properly fund and properly reform social care. And that would mean that potentially... Wouldn't, you couldn't say none of this would happen. It's not something that you can predict. But they would have been in a lot better position if they had enough staff in the home, enough money, enough resources, their PPE, any other equipment that they needed. But it was, it's not true that they had everything they needed. You know, they were using bin bags as, as aprons, sharing masks. You know, that is not what a government should be doing to anybody, let alone an older person who, who's home and is reliant on someone else looking after them. So how could, how could policy, particularly in respect to the NHS, be improved to support older people, in your view? Oh, don't start me off. I've just spent today going through the NHS reform white paper which um, just gives us more of the same, more privatisation and, and nothing uh, for NHS staff, as we know. Um, the NHS exists uh, as an establishment that was created to look after the health of the nation, their health and wellbeing. Over the years, that has been eroded by different changes, different governments doing top-down restructuring, taking this away, taking that away, 
putting this in, putting that in, and you end up with people, as Professor Kin says, that don't have any health um, background at all. They become administrators and the health, and it shows because um, how uh, people have to work on the wards and in frontline services um, doesn't, doesn't compute with the way that the population needs its health. And if you look at a nation's health being, if you've got a nation that is healthy, you've got a good economy and you've got, you know, uh, people have happy and fairly good quality life. Um, but the health of the nation hasn't been looked after for decades and we're in position now. The NHS was on its knees. It will continue to struggle because the only thing this government can think of is to reform it top down, yeah, to make public health England, in, you know, take it all away and put it into an, a centralised body that has no connection with local people. I mean, the, the people who should be doing test, test, test track and taste are local authorities. They, they have done it for years. It's something that is part of their structure. They know exactly how to do it. And yet we've given 35 million pounds to an organization that has no connection with health whatsoever and cannot get it right. So again, I think it, it's about, we do need, the NHS needs to be reformed, but it needs to be reformed for the people. Yeah, it needs, needs to be a bottom-up reformation, not what government thinks we should have. Well, thank you very much, Jan Short, for yeah. answering my questions. Uh, I'm mindful of the time, so I'm going to hand you back to Mr. Mansfield, who yeah. is preparing this panel. Thank you very much. Yes, can I ask the panel if they have any questions at this moment? No, well, I do. <laughs> just <laughs> one. I just have one, yes. You, you were talking about you spent the day looking at the white paper. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you know not very many of us will have done that at this stage. So I think I think the real question that comes out of what you've just been saying is this: is it's called the internal market, but uh, it's another way of describing privatisation. It's another way of describing vested interest. Uh, and of course, the care home industry it is has seen a vast growth in private management and. And whilst one hopes that everyone uh, survives, uh, is there a, an issue here that, I'll put it bluntly, should care homes be managed publicly and not privately? Absolutely. That's what our um, policy for national care service is about. Publicly owned, publicly delivered and publicly accountable. Yeah which makes the money, you know, you look at all the money that these private um, firms get, you know, all the contracts that have gone out, private care providers, it's all taxpayers' money, yeah? And that taxpayers' money would be better spent uh, being delivered, managed, and being accountable from public bodies. So we would look at local authorities working alongside the NHS and potentially uh, maybe some voluntary organisations with um, a good track record of delivering public, public services because there are a lot around and they do it very well. So that would be a consortium for us, but that would make sure that everything that is paid out is going to the right place for the right reason 
And if it goes wrong, there's an accountability structure. There's no accountability structure for any of the contracts that have gone out for PPE. Certainly no accountability for the test, track and trace or for the failed app. Um, and it's about time taxpayers got value for their money. And that's the way to do it. It's not, not saying that all care homes are private care homes are bad. There's a mixture of very good, um, some bad in the main, the most of them are, uh, you know, in the middle. And they do a huge good job, but um, for taxpayers' money and for, I think, family and resident um, kind of safety and peace of mind. Yeah, if you've got a public, if you've got a local authority looking after you, then you have some redress if something goes wrong. It's so convoluted and fragmented that if you've got a complaint, they send you around three circles so you give up before you can get a complaint done. But you know, the system has been this way and it's built, as you say, built up over the years, more privatization. Uh, because of less funding to local authorities. I mean, if you look at the local authority budgets, they will tell you that potentially now 60, over 60% of their income into local authorities goes on children and uh, elder care. So what's left for the rest of the communities? Yeah. So to have to have that control and to be able to deliver in a community setting into something that is properly run is absolutely key for older people. Well, Mayor, thank you very much indeed for your evidence You're today welcome. and that particular summary of the position. And uh, we are, I take on board some of the points you're making about accountability because that's what the last witness said as well. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to come back to this issue with the government. Thank you for your attendance thank you. today. Now, may we please... Um, Alona Hackett called the last witness today, Dr. Helen Salisbury, who's been waiting very patiently. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Helen Salisbury, uh, thank you for your witness statement. Um, could you give the panel uh, your occupation, please? Yes, good evening. I'm a GP um, in Oxford. Thank you. And you, uh, provided a witness statement uh, on the 6th of March, is that correct? That's right, yes. And um, above your signature, you have confirmed that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer, is that correct? Indeed, although I'm sure they could be even more complete. Um, <laughs> runs out of time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, could I, I just start with um, a sort of general question? What role have primary care services played in response to the pandemic and how might that have been different? Very interesting. Um, we have to think our way back to how it was when the pandemic struck. Um, I think on the whole, mostly we've been sort of sidelined and ignored and the skills that we could have brought to bear, most were not used or only used very late. So there was a weird time when the first pandemic first started, when we were actually underemployed. Mm. Um, I think we really didn't know what was going to happen and how 
the health service would be impacted. And there were all these horrible pictures from southern Europe of people lying in hospital corridors. And there was a lot of fear. So people stayed away from us. But also um, there was a decision that all the COVID inquiries should go through 111. Um, and we were all on a really steep learning curve about how to respond to this new illness. There were loads and loads of unknowns. And I think we, we were just beginning, it took us quite a while to get to grips with this whole thing of being really dangerously short of oxygen, but not necessarily feeling breathless, which a lot of our patients had. And I think what did happen was a lot of uh, first responders, 111 callers were, were hired in a hurry and didn't get much training. And I have a horrible feeling that if some of those patients had been passed on to their GPs or had got to speak to their GPs earlier, we might have saved some lives because then we did hear, like um, Lobby told us earlier, of people who died at home because they didn't get the medical attention they needed quick enough. So we were really put to one side. Mm -hmm. The other place that we, I think we really, really could have made a difference in is in the testing. Mm -hmm. So traditionally uh, with infectious diseases, the, the model is that people are ill, they go to their GP or they, they contact them. We organize testing, uh, which goes to the lab. And we also inform public health department that there's a case and, and if it, there's, a, there's a whole list of things which are notifiable because it's a public health matter, they're infectious. And then public health take it over from there and contact family, school, wherever there might be um, pa passing on of, the, of, of whatever infection it is. And that's how it's always worked. And clearly at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't in public health or primary care have the capacity to take on all of that. However, we could have done had we been given some resources to build that capacity, had we built on the expertise we already had, on the systems we already had. Um, and that just didn't happen. It, it, it went somewhere else to people who had no idea what they were doing. So we did know what we were doing, but we would have needed a lot of help. But we would have started at least a few steps ahead of the whole privatised system that happened. And it was privatised um, labs. It was privatised testing, distribution, and uh, it, you know, and it didn't work. And right at the beginning, there were two things, I suppose, that went horribly wrong. One was this decision that they did row back on eventually, but the decision that we weren't going to try and contain this virus. This take it on the chin, herd immunity, policy um, that was there from the right at the beginning and the thing is that we knew we knew already from China from from uh, other places that the mortality of this virus was one percent now you don't have to be a very sophisticated mathematical modeler to show that if you're going for herd immunity which means basically you want most people to get it then at a 1% mortality, if everybody got it, that's 660,000 deaths, which is un unacceptable. Now, it might be slightly more complicated around the edges, but it's still going to be an awful lot of bodies. 
And that was really clear to most of us right from the beginning. Um, so that was the first mistake that this idea, that, that the policy was wrong. They didn't even try to contain it. And then a little bit later, they thought, oh, no, we, we probably do need to be finding out where it is and following it up. And it's possibly even not until, you know, the summer when that first peak had gone down that that was even started to be possible. But they still decided to, you know, they went for somebody else doing it rather than us. Mm. And I do feel that as GPs, we could work with public health partners and we could work with our patients mm. because our patients, mostly, where GP is still functioning, and I guess there are places in the country where it's not functioning that well, but where it is functioning, we have our list of patients, we know our patients, that our patients trust us. If somebody has an infection, we can ring up that household, we can talk to them, we can find out what's going on, and we can persuade other people to have tests or to get help to isolate or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and all of our involvement with our local communities was ignored. Mm -hmm. And I think we could have... I think at the beginning, we could have made it less bad and we could certainly have been really involved in preventing the second wave and the third wave. Um, yeah, so, so there's intense frustration from the general practice angle. So uh, in terms of what, G, what general practice could have offered, it's uh, knowing who's in what household, potentially what their occupations are, being able to have that con difficult conversation with them um, about, look, you've tested positive, what does this mean for you? So really the, the, the communication and the support aspect is not that, is that what you're saying? It, it, there was no community engagement. It was farmed out to sort of faceless third party. <laughs> What's really interesting is that, and of course, GPs don't have time to do all of it, but they can do it in conjunction with with, with um, public health. And what we do know is where public health's been really involved, um, local public health departments. Um, so uh, Ceredigion in Wales had a really good project doing this, and they massively cut their rates because they had local people doing the contacting. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and it's the kind of outsourcing anonymous... Um, nature of, of, of the handling of all this, both with, with the testing, with the, with the tracing. And the other thing about testing that I want to talk about was about who gets tested. Because if we think our way back, now there's loads of tests out there, but if we think our way back, it was really difficult to get a test. Really difficult. You had to have the right symptoms and you had to ring at the right moment or go on the website at the right moment because if you missed it there would be none and you'd be sent to you know from Oxford to Ipswich or whatever it is to get a test um and there was a space where I think GPs could have been there helping work out actually which people would be best off having a test and getting those people to ha come somewhere local to have that test and I do think I mean as the vaccine program has shown if you can do it locally it works so much better I, and I think so that some of the wrong people got tested and some of the people needed to be tested weren't tested yeah uh, yeah uh, I suppose at, at the beginning how um well talking about sort of public health messaging how important would you say public health messaging is and how do you think it should have been sort of formulated, communicated um, in yeah. terms of the pandemic. 
it's difficult to distinguish between what went wrong with the messaging and what went wrong with the messages. You see what I mean? What 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 the, the things that they were trying to convey. Because I think right at the very beginning, there really was a it's not much worse than the flu, we'll get over this, we're gonna take it on the chin. And that was the take let's take it on the chin was that really quite infamous thing that 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 um the Prime Minister said. Um and I think it's actually incredible how observant most people have been of the rules that have been put in place. Um, it's just that they've been the wrong rules an awful lot of the time and been very, very slow to catch up with the science. So there's a whole load of performative surface wiping that's going on, whereas we really do know that it's airborne. It's not about touching surfaces. That's not how you pass it on. It's, it's airborne. And we kind of knew that even last summer when the Chancellor decided that it would be a really good idea to get people into restaurants together, uh, which was a sort of, you know, it almost feels as if it's working to promote the virus because it was so clear that that would be something that would lead to spread. And it did. There's some, there's some work for, I think it's from Warwick, um, showing... Uh, I think it's between 8 and 17% of case, case rises at the end of the summer were due specifically to the Eat Out to Help Out um, uh, scheme. So, so it's difficult. I mean, I, I mean, the messaging was poor. There are all sorts of completely impenetrable graphs, which you couldn't even see if you were colorblind, for example, which nobody could interpret, which got put up on those Downing Street briefings. So that there was poor messaging. But I think above all, there were poor messages um, because and, and one wonders whether actually they just didn't agree with themselves within the government because it kept they kept changing their minds. And if you want to lose trust, how do you do that? You just keep changing the message every five minutes. And it there was this kind of repeated trope of people like me shouting from the sidelines and an independent sage and all the other people with much louder voices than mine saying, you know, this is going to be a disaster. For example, Christmas, for example, schools reopening after Christmas. Um, and yet they kind of went ahead and at some stages kind of rode back at the very last minute. So Christmas is safe. It's absolutely fine. Such fun. Well, it's not so fine. Maybe just one day. I mean, it was clearly not fine. And we had a huge spike of death, of unnecessary, completely avoidable deaths that happened in January because of that failure to listen to, um, to, to whatever all the scientists were saying, that this was going to be dangerous. And again, you know, if you wanted to design something to let this virus spread just that little bit more, why not open schools for a single day and get all the kids mixing and then taking their virus back home? Sorry, I, I sound very angry. I am very angry. I'm very, very angry because so many people have died who needn't have died. Um, and if you look at places like, you know, Vietnam has 0 0.5 deaths per million. We have 1,820 something now, last time I looked, deaths per million. Uh, and it's not as if we started fatter or poorer or more ill to start with. It's about management. It's about how we handle things. Sorry, I'm going. No, all right. Um, at the risk of making you a little bit more angry, I'm going to ask you this question. Um, so forgive me in advance. The um, Cross-Party Public Accounts Committee today reported government had spent 37 billion 
on a failed test and trace system. What shortfall are GP services currently facing? It's really, really difficult. Um, I think we continually match our service to the money that's available. So it's not so much what the GPs are lacking, it's what the patients are lacking because we can't provide it. It's what we can't, we, the patients are lacking because we don't have enough GPs because nobody will come into the profession because it's such really, really hard work because there aren't enough of us so we're working 12 hour days and then you can't recruit anybody. Um, so so it's not it's not that the and, and there are an awful lot of GP service premises which are just totally unfit for purpose. And if you just think about what it could be, you know, most the vast majority of consultations within the NHS happen in, in general practice. It gets a fraction of the overall budget. And you know, test and trace, I think it's something like Oh, it, it's several multiples of what the entire of gen, entirety of general practice gets in a year has gone to this test and trace, which doesn't seem to have helped at all. So yes, I'm pretty angry about that. Thank you. So, uh, well, I'm going to pass you back to the panel now, uh, Dr. Okay. Helen Salisbury. Thank you so much for answering my questions. I did want to give the opportunity, of, well, the panel to ask you some questions. I'm sure there will be some. So thank you. Yes, I think Dr. Jackie Davis has got a question. You're on mute, I think. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, that's fine. Yeah. That's much better. Yes. Uh, I just want to say, Helen, thanks. That was very, very interesting. Um, and I've got really, if I can... I have two questions. Um, the first is, you know, you're very much part of Keep Our NHS Public. Um, and I wonder, you know, uh, primary care has been fantastically adaptable, really. It's been incredible, uh, the, 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 the speed with which primary care responded to this and set up different ways of working. Um, do you think the government has taken advantage of GPs' adaptability to kind of creep ahead their privatisation agenda at all? Um, because I think we're quite fearful that, you know, they see you know, this is a day to this is a day to bury bad news, if you like. This is a way to get away with some stuff. Um, and we know about those private practices, those private GP surgeries that are now being set up. And my, my other question, and it's really a yes or no, but, but you know, the, the, the big question today was the government said, I'm just reading it here, at all stages they've been guided by the science um, and they did everything they could. And I just want to ask you as a GP, do you think that's right? Um, and, you know, what's your feeling about what they've said and what we should do about it? I hope that's not too much. Second question first. They say yeah. they were guided by the science, as if there is unity. There were mm. some scientists, and I have to say with huge regret and embarrassment, some from my own university, um, who thought that locking down was a bad idea and who had this idea that... that herd immunity would would help and it came with a whole load of really really distasteful oh it's only the elderly or the people with long-term conditions who are dying and, and the number of times I, I, I read that I, I mean, really really offensive stuff but there was a very small minority of scientists who said that and I think that the government took advantage of, they found some people who would say what they wanted to say mm -hmm. They think that fitted with their agenda, although it was 
it's clear to everyone with you know thinking for five minutes that if you want to save the economy you have to get on top of the pandemic but it was kind of no we won't lock down because it'll damage the economy so yeah i don't think they followed any consensus of science in terms of what's happening in general practice really difficult to know what's going on now the only one thing that might is a small glimmer of hope in all of this is that um private enterprise that was offering video consultations from to you know you and you can talk to your gp remotely now everybody's doing that so they have lost their usp <laughs> um, so that's my only small glimmer of hope with that but i do think gps have done a fantastic job in in terms of rapidly setting up separate mm-hmm. clinics for covid patients rapidly rolling out you know roaming people with sats monitors for for patients um and and the vaccination clinics which have been amazing mm-hmm. so the adaptability has been there <sighs> they'll never get that out of a private company because you can't make money out of being that adaptable mm-hmm. but it may be too late by the time they find that out okay thank you right there's a time for at least one question i think professor modi yeah On mute. On mute. Sorry. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. Um, Helen, uh, you may have heard the the uh, testimony from Lobby Akinola, which I found incredibly moving and um, very difficult to listen to. So I can only thank Lobby for the, having the courage to to present this to us today. But the, it brings me to my question, which is to go back to your original comments about the relationship between general practice and 111, or rather the lack of relationship. Can we just probe, can I just get your thoughts a little bit or, or some, ev- some evidence from you about this? What actually were, was your practice told in relation, were you actually told, do not make yourself available to patients? Or was it that patients no. were told they should contact 111 first? How did it actually work? Could you just give us the detail there, please? Yes, we weren't told not to, but most of our patients were told very strongly because a very large message in the media, ring 111, don't trouble your GP, ring 111. Um, And at the beginning, it took a lot of months before we had any notifications of people's positive results. So we didn't know that our patients were ill. Um, So there was no consultation with you. There There was no discussion with you about the fact that we are going to tell, we, the government, are going to tell patients not to contact you their general practitioners but to go to 111 no maybe some consultation happened somewhere up further up food chain from me but certainly as a a working gp but as a working gp this was not this was this no i I had no idea it was going to happen and it did happen and i think a lot of my patients didn't get good care much later on we started getting results Mm -hmm. and then then we had a system and if you know if they were very young we'd kind of leave them to it and if they were over over 60 we would ring them up and say we can see you've got a positive test. Are you OK? And we had a system. Anyone we knew about, we had a system of ringing them every day. We had special clinics where we would ring. But most, a lot of our patients, we didn't know they were ill. We so again, the, the, and you make, you make a very, very pertinent point that, that, once again, the general practitioner services in this country were perfectly able and well constituted to be able to provide this uh, one-to-one family-centred care, albeit at a distance, and yet and yet, the messaging completely put the kibosh on that. Absolutely. Um, 
And I think a lot of patients were given the message, your GP is not available to you now, which was really, really uh, hard, really hard for patients. Um, and it meant that we didn't fulfill the role that we should have done. Thank you, Helen. Well, I'm afraid to say, I'm sorry to have to cut off, that I'm going to have to make Dr. Helen's Halsbury unavailable to us because we've come to the end of the period, unless I'm told otherwise. Is there time for any more questions? I, I'm, I'm... Yes. Just hold, yes. There is. Okay. Well, do carry on. Sorry. Fine. Snuck in there. Um, thank you, um, Dr. Salisbury. That's really, really quite an eloquent um, uh, reflection on your on your experience as a GP. I have one question, but before that question, I just want to touch on one thing you said about the who of who gets tested, because I'd like to hear your thoughts on not just the who or related to the who, the spectrum of symptoms that elicited a test and the potential role for the clinical algorithms, um, because obviously we know that there's there only four um, official symptoms, but we know increasingly they're broader symptoms. So I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on that and the potential role that the GPs could have played in that if more involved in testing but really my core question is around non-COVID care as part of the response because one of the critical um, uh, indirect impacts of, of COVID as well is the increased mortality from other uh, chronic conditions so I wondered also from your perspective as a GP what else could have been done um, to protect um, patients with these pre-existing conditions because we're seeing you know increased deaths from cardiovascular disease heart attacks etc etc so I'd love to get love to get your thoughts on, on on both of those if I could yeah so on testing it is still a problem um I mean at the time pretty much it was it was really difficult to get a test unless you had a car which you know, really meant that people who were um, poorer didn't get testing you you could only go to some of those testings as a drive-through uh, so if you cycled or walked or yeah you were stuck really you could get a um, one cent in the post but that took a lot longer and the, what symptoms um, it was really quite uh, evident from quite early on that things like diarrhea particularly in some of the younger patients was a key symptom of covid and in older patients, new onset of confusion was a symptom. But because the, the criteria for getting a test was very narrow. And the thing that really annoyed me was that I couldn't, having had a conversation and having had a, made a, a, a judgment that, yes, I think it really is a good idea for you to get a COVID test. I didn't have any access to, to get that test on behalf of my patient they just had to go on the website and the website would say no so all I could do was advise them to be economical with the truth which I really really didn't want to do yeah? um, but they needed a test so we were really stuck from that point of view by because of the narrow criteria and the lack of any route for professional input into those tests and the second bit of your question sorry I've almost forgotten what that was on Related to non-COVID so non harms. Yes, I mean, there are still specialties in the city in which I work which have not opened up to new referrals. They've been closed for a year to referrals now. So none of my patients who need to see an ENT surgeon can do so within 
um, the Oxfordshire region, I have to send them to another county. So lots and lots of things have been disrupted. Um, and some of it was unavoidable. Some of it, I've no idea what's going on why they haven't got themselves up to back together again. I think within general practice, it's been it's been hard because um, people have been trying to stay away. People are very fearful of having infections. We've tried really hard to keep our surgery with a limited foot, footfall. But I think because of that, we've had, um, uh, you know, people who have, have suffered harms. And again, it's, it's, these harms usually fall unequally. Had there been, one could imagine another, another world where there might have been more investment to help things, other services carry on. Um, I, I don't quite know how that would have worked. I haven't really put my head around that. And I also feel that where I am, we've managed pretty well to keep things going. And in other places which were hard pressed to begin with, they've, they've really struggled. I think on that note, uh, I'm very much obliged to you, Dr. Helen Salisbury, for your evidence tonight. And um, may I turn back and, well, I don't know whether I personally close the proceedings or whether it happens automatically. Um, I'll close, Michael, if that's okay. Yes, that So, um, first of all, thank you very much to Michael and Lorna for making sure um, that uh, the real uh, important points from the testimony came out. Thank you very much to our panel uh, and to the four excellent witnesses, Sir David King, Lobby Akinola and his very moving testimony, um, Jan Short with her breadth of knowledge and uh, Helen Salisbury for giving us a really good insight into the um, situation with general practice. Uh, I should mention the crowdfunder. It has come up in the chat. It does cost money to run these sessions. So if people are able to contribute to our crowdfunder, that would be very much appreciated. And we can also find the details on the KOMP um, website. The next session is in two weeks' time, 24th of March. And the title is, Is Zero COVID Possible? And uh, amongst other witnesses, we have Professor Anthony Costello with very considerable experience of working with the World Health Organization and Dr. Michael Baker, who led the response to the COVID pandemic in New Zealand. So I'd like to thank everyone who's participated tonight and all the people who've been posting on the chat line and uh, watching uh, the whole proceedings. Uh, just one final note is to you, Michael. Could you check your email um, for a post-session uh, meetup? Thank you very much. I hope to see as many of you as possible um, in two weeks' time for the next session. Thank you. Thank you.